This is episode 180, Addiction, Recovery, and Fearless Happiness with Max Naist. My name is Tudor Alexander, and this is the Dance of Life podcast. Every week, my goal is to inspire you to take action towards what you love, live a transformed life, and enjoy the journey there. Are you ready? Let's go. What's up, everybody? Happy Friday. Welcome back to the show. Jesse Jackson starting us off today. The only time you should ever be looking down on someone is when you're helping them up. You know, we all fall, we all fail, we all have our crosses to bear, and that's an important thing to constantly remind ourselves when we judge other people. You can even apply that to yourself. You know, I find I judge myself the harshest, and that's something that we all have to deal with, shame, guilt, especially in today's topic, and that's going to be front and center, which is addiction. You know, this is actually going to be, I don't want to say a darker episode, but, you know, if you have a sensitive stomach, if you, you know, this episode is rated explicit, we're going to be getting into some, you know, heavier material. My guest is very inspiring. His name is Max Naist. He's an author. He recently published his book, Fearless Happiness, and it's called My Addiction, My Battles, My Recovery. Max currently works in the mental health field as a case manager, both for adult mental health and transitional youth age 16 to 25 years old. He also has worked with adolescents and adults as a substance abuse counselor. Max served three and a half years in the Navy, where he was honorably discharged, and he also earned his Bachelor's of Arts in Psychology from Argosy University. Max's book and story details his 15-year recovery from addiction into a life of serving and helping others find their path back home. You know, we have an inspiring, inspiring interview today. I'm so excited. This is going to be something new on the show. I haven't done this before. Uh, really quick, if you want to get in touch with Max, if you find this interview inspiring, if you know anybody struggling with addiction and you want to reach out, you can follow Max at maxneist.com. That's spelled M-A-X-N-I-J-S-T dot com or Facebook. He also started a Facebook group called Fearless Happiness. It's a free group. You don't have to be in recovery or anything like that. But if you are also, great resource to turn to for support, for positivity, for encouragement, for community. So check it out, Fearless Happiness on Facebook. Um, and you can also go to fearlesshappiness.com and get the book he just published, which is basically detailing the story uh, that we're going to be diving into in today's episode. You know, when I learned about Max, I found his story super inspiring. Again, he's like the first guest I've ever had on this show. It's been about two years now, a little over two years for the podcast. And I've never talked and anybody had on here to talk about addiction, recovery, opening up about you know, all these different things involved in this in this process. And today we're going to really do a deep dive. Like I said, this episode's explicit uh, for a reason. So just be warned, you know, but it's going to be a great stuff. Max shares his story, you know, his recovery, his relapse, his loss that he's suffered through and the lessons he's learned, um, especially as a substance abuse counselor and his new book and a ton of other really awesome stuff. It's a great, great interview. I'm super excited to share it with you. We're going to jump right into it, a little music, and let's hit the ground running. Let's do it.
What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the show. My name is Peter Alexander. I am your host for today's episode. I am here with my amazing guest, Max Naist. What's up, man? It's good to have you on the show. Oh, thank you for having me. Dude, I'm stoked. You know, you're the, gonna, you're the first person that I've had for this particular topic we're talking about today. Such a big topic. I'm actually surprised that I haven't had anybody on my show. It's been about two years now, a little over two years, and we're talking about addiction, recovery, you know, that whole journey. I mean, that's, that's so prevalent today, especially, right? I mean, what would you say to that? Oh, it's, it's an epidemic right now. Kids, I call them kids because most of them are like, I mean, 16 to 20 something year olds now, and they're dying every day. Excuse me. And it's, it's just crazy what's going on. You know, this fentanyl stuff that they have out there now, they're putting it everything, you know, in everything. And I'm talking from marijuana to cocaine, to speed, to heroin. It's crazy. Wasn't it like those, uh, those vape? I was reading about the whole vaping, whatever, epidemic and all that stuff. And apparently it's because most of those situations were, were not actual like stores they were getting them from. It's all like black market under the, under the rug type of stuff. And so they were laced with all kinds of, you know, bad oils or fentanyl or whatever else, you know? And so all these kids were just like dying or going to the emergency room with lung problems, you know, because they're trying to get, vapes they were i think they were underage most of them right like they were they were under 18 that were trying to do all this vaping stuff you know and so that's why they were trying to get it under the radar but it just goes to show you the access that we have today and the information that's available to anybody whether they're 15 or they're 25 or it doesn't matter right i mean it's a different world right like when you in your book we're going to talk about it a little bit today but your journey's been you said about 15 years now, right? Of recovery? Uh, just over 16, actually. That was a different world back then. I mean, 15, 16 years It was years ago, when... I was like before it, Google it was. and Facebook. <laughs> right. It totally was. And, you know, I've heard kids tell me that they can go on Craigslist. And there's like this whole language, you know. Mm. And they can buy it off people off of off of craigslist it's it's like just slang insane. posts and stuff like that yeah I haven't, I haven't used craigslist in forever man i thought that was like pretty much down and out but i guess people are still using it for drugs and all that kind of stuff right right exactly they're using it for all kinds of crazy things so yeah but see the thing is with that they don't know if they're talking to a police officer or not i mean a lot mm-hmm. of people get in trouble that way but that's the drug addict mentality. They're going to try whatever they can to get what they got to get. You know, that's a, that was my mentality during my the highlight of, you know, or the, the really bad part of my addiction. I went to, well, they, you know, there's a saying in, in AA, you go to any lengths for your, your sobriety. I went to any lengths for my, for my drugs. Hmm. How did you get and I, had to, I had to switch that around. I'm sorry, how did you, go ahead. How did, no, you're good. How, how did you get started? I mean... Was it just something that evolved like from whatever, you know, smoking weed and then it kind of just got in more and more progressively into crazier stuff or like you got pressured into it. You thought it was cool. Like what was, what was the thing that, you know, that pulled you towards it? Everybody's well, got a different reason. Right. And, and mine was, 
you know, a lot of it was experimentation, wanting to be in with the in crowd, you know what I mean? Yeah. And it's, for me, it started like seventh grade, you know, smoking marijuana, you know, drinking alcohol, mostly beer for me at that time. And, you know, seventh, eighth grade, that's basic. It was just to fit in because, excuse me, I always felt like I didn't fit in. You know what I mean? For there was always this strange reason that I felt like I was never a part of, you know, because I would have friends who had fathers and my father wasn't around growing up. So it was to fit in. And then when I hit high school, it just progressed from there, you know, Mm. and I, I always hung out like my friends were always a year to two years, sometimes three years older with me. So I was hanging out with the older crowd. Gotcha. You know, and all my brothers and sisters, at least the five older ones, were all older and out of the house. So I, I really didn't have much. And I'm not trying to say my mom was you know, not a good mother, which she was, because she made sure that my little brother and I had everything we needed. You know, <clears throat> she provided a roof over our heads, bed, you know, place to sleep, food in our belly. She always took good care, but she was a single mother. So she, she you know, she was working a lot. And then I found that how do I want to, I want to put this in a way, you know, not just not fitting in. It just started. That was the thing that everybody did, right? Yeah. yeah. You know, you go to school during the week and by like Thursday, you're out, everybody's asking, Hey, where's the parties this weekend? (laughs) Right. You know what I mean? Where's the kegger at? You know what I mean? And and I played sports. I played football and I wrestled, um, you know, I played baseball and stuff like that growing up. But when I got to high school, it was mostly football and wrestling. And, you know, when I went to school, and I think it's still the same way now, that you had to have a C average in order to play sports. Or if not, you couldn't play. So I always maintained my grades during those sports, you know, during the seasons. But then after that, it was my next sport was partying on the weekend. Hmm. And it just progressed, you know, and I got to 10th grade. I think it was 10th or 11th when I was introduced to cocaine. Wow. You know, and I loved it. You know, I love that, that rush and, you know, it just got worse and and progressively worse where by the time I hit my senior year in high school, I had to do two semesters worth of work in one semester just to barely graduate, you know, because I had, you know, I would ditch school, you know, I was, you know, a lot of people like um, to call me the Jeff Spicoli of my class, you know what I mean? Because Mm -hmm. if I wasn't in the parking lot in, in school smoking marijuana, I was, you know, if I had white eyes, my teachers would wonder if I was on something, put it that way. <laughs> wow. I mean, I'm, yeah. And it was, that's just how bad it was. And, you know, but I ended up graduating. It came down to my last class. I had to get a B plus or better. And I remember this teacher, she, you know, and I, I respect her now for what she did for me back then though. I just thought she hated me, but you know, the whole last semester, she said, if you don't get a B plus on my final, you do not graduate high school. And it took till that last day. The last class of the day was my English class. She sat me right in front of her. <clears throat> I took the test and I'll never forget. So when the teacher's aide brought the test back, right? Remember those Scantrons? Oh, I remember Scantron. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> Good old I was days. one of the, I was one of the first people done, but see, I had studied and I had done all the assignments that she was giving me because I wanted to graduate. I wanted to prove my family wrong that I was going to graduate. I mean, I had my mother at one point even tell me, I don't think you're going to graduate high school. Wow. You know, so I finished the test. I couldn't have cheated because she sat me right in front of her. She did that on purpose and she got the test back and I remember her flipping through it, you know, and I'll never forget. She looked up at me 
and she shook her head and I thought my heart sunk to the ground. Like I just failed high school. Well, like, oh, crap. After all, <laughs> yeah. And she ended up getting up and, and, and giving me a hug. And she said, I knew you could do it. Oh, and then, wow. I, you know, she gave me the test to show my vice principal. I got my, uh, I got my captain gown and, you know, for better half of that end of my senior year, it was just party every day, every day. Wow. Eh. So and, when that um, happened, when you graduated like that and like you, I mean, you really kind of buckled down and did the work and she gave you a hug and there was an authentic moment. What was going on in your mind? Was, did anything change at that time or were you like, all right, shit, now I can actually get back to partying. Like how was your mental, did that change you at all? Or did, were you more like just looking for the relief of getting done with school? So you get back to, you know, whatever the partying. Yeah. And, and at that time, and I got to admit, that's what it was. It was like yeah. relief. Cool. Now I can go party. I'm an adult, you know, cause I turned 18 while I was in high school and yeah. nobody can tell me any different. And, and until one day, you know, after a hard night of partying, I remember my mom walking in the room and, and telling me, you got three choices, pretty much. She, my mom, she spoke Dutch to us, so she had this accent. And she says, you know, you got three choices. It's either you work full-time, you go to school full-time, or you work part-time and go to school part-time, but you're not going to do what you've been doing this, you know, the last couple years of your high school life. And is you know, going out all night, coming home all hours of the night. Were you working? Like how are you affording all those, let's say parties or drugs or beer or whatever? Like, were you, do you have a part-time job to pay for all that or how, how did you do it? Yeah, I, I did work part-time uh, at a couple places. I, I would say like cocaine wasn't, isn't cheap. I mean, we, right, right, but. right. But see, I was like the little brother and I would save just enough money to pitch in with everybody. And we just, <laughs> right. all of us, you know what I mean? Like everybody would pitch in and we just party all night and, yeah. You know, I was like the little brother of the group. So like right. I was taken care of, but, um, yeah, so I had to work. I actually got fired from one job right before I went to the Navy. Cause I, I was, I was drinking all the moosehead beer in that place. Cause I, the, the girl that I went to school with, her parents owned a pizza place. And, and uh, I remember they had a meeting with us and they looked right at me. It's like, how come the moose head is always the first keg that's gone? And I looked at them like, I don't know what you're talking about. You know what I mean? Like, it's <laughs> not me. But, you know, and as I look back, I didn't heed those warning signs. You know what I mean? Mm. Um, I didn't heed the people telling me, wow, Max, you're like, you're out of control. You know, like I was the one up at two, three in the morning looking for the party still when everybody went home and they were done. Wow. You know, and then I said I had that moment where my mom gave me those choices. So the next day when I got up, I went to the recruiting station and I joined the Navy. Mm. Came home that day and I said, hey, mama. Yeah, I'm doing what you said. I'm going to the Navy. And that kind of caught her off guard. So, you know, I, I went to Hawaii as, as a graduation gift from my mom. And she matched what I had made from work. So I went with two friends of mine, two good friends of mine, and went to Hawaii for two weeks. And when I came home the following week, I was going to boot camp. Wow. How was that transition for you? I mean, going from partying, you know, to... Did you, did you do any partying or drugs in the, in the Navy or like, I'm guessing you probably didn't really have access to that kind of stuff over there. Well, I'll get to that. So here, <laughs> <laughs> so when I went to boot camp that for, I was still drunk from the going away party that I went to. Right. So I went to, I headed to San Diego, went to boot camp, uh, graduated boot camp, And then I, um, 
got my orders to go to school in San Francisco. I went to a school on Treasure Island, which is no longer open anymore, but that's where they did a lot of the, they had a lot of schooling there for, for the Navy. Mm-hmm. And so I remember the very first day of school, you know, we didn't have school. They said, yeah, go into town. It's fleet week. Every year they have this thing called fleet week in San Francisco in the Bay. And, and all the officers stay on the ship and do tours of the ships while all the enlisted guys get to go on the pier and basically party all day long. Wow. So that year I walk on the pier, you know, after they let us go and there's Stevie Ray Bond playing a free concert for all of us wow. and all the beer, all the beer we could drink free relapse time. <laughs> oh, it was like, I just found heaven. You know what I mean? I'm 18 years old and I'm like, wow, I'm watching Stevie Ray Vaughan and you know what I mean? And, and I had a blast and I did really well in school there. I graduated in the top 5% of my class. And what they do is at the beginning, before you start class, they have you fill out this thing called a dream sheet. And it's all these different ports you'd like to go, you know, and they always preface it with, you're not guaranteed these, but we'd like to see where you want to go. So I put like Spain, Portugal, Hawaii. I put all these foreign ports, right? So the day of graduation, we're, we're getting ready. We're sitting in the room. They're giving us our orders. I open my envelope and my orders say Long Beach Naval Station. Wow. Which was 20 minutes from my house. Right. So I called <laughs> not, my mom up. That, not yeah, too I exotic, called, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, I called my mom up that day and I said, I said, mom, don't clean up my room. I'm coming home. She's all, what? I said, yeah, I got stationed in Long Beach. And she goes, because at that time they had that commercial for the Navy that said, it's not just a job, it's an adventure. You know what I mean? Mm, And she goes, what happened? What happened to your adventure? I go, I guess my adventure is going to be back home, which for me was bad, right? Mm. Because now I'm going back home and, and the friends I was partying with are still doing the same thing, really, because I haven't been gone that long. Right. So, you know, I would drive to work to Long Beach and, you know, and then I would go home on the weekends if I wasn't on duty and, and it was party on, it was party on. And, and, and one time, you know, and this, at this time in 1986, you know, the military enacted that zero tolerance for drugs. And um, so I remember a few times, you know, I didn't have anything on me, but I would walk up to the ship and you'd walk across the thing and there would be two dogs on each side with the MPs like ready to sniff your bags and, and they would sniff oh, wow. your bags. And then if it was your time to test, they'd point you over to where to go. And, and one night or one day coming on board, they pointed over to where I had to go. And I ended up testing positive for cocaine. Wow. Yeah. So they put me on 45 days extra duty and 45 days restriction, which means I, I couldn't leave the ship. And then after my regular shift during the day, I would have to do another few hours after that. And, uh, you know, so I called my mom and, you know, I lied to her. Oh yeah, we're doing these drills. I, I'm not going to be able to make it home. You know, I'm, I'm going to be here for at least a month and a half. And, you know, later I would find out she knew I wasn't telling the truth. She knew mm-hmm. something was up, but she was like, Oh, mother's okay. intuition. Absolutely. So I, I managed, you know, to, to discharge from the Navy honorably. I hurt my ankle a few times and they ended up operating on it. And, you know, they didn't find me fit for, shipboard life as they would say and so they ended up discharging me from the navy um and then at that time i met my uh who is now my ex-wife and we started a family and the party was still kind of bad but when i found out my son was born it changed you know what i mean i stopped 
Mm. Like even that day I stopped smoking. Like immediately, I, huh? Like immediately, you know, and I would drink here and there, but I, I wasn't doing drugs. What went through your anything. mind that made you suddenly do such a drastic U-turn? I mean, you had so many different situations, which is, you're really, I love it because you're really painting the picture of with the power of addiction, right? I mean, you had, you know, the whole situation with the, the, the English teacher that hugged you and that had that whole authentic moment. And then like in your mind, you still were just thinking about party, party, party. Like I can't wait to get out of this. You know, you had your mom give you those three ultimatums and you know, you moved back and it was still okay. This, so you had all these different situations that were pretty life changing up until your son was born. That was really when it was like, okay, I'm going to do a, like a U-turn from this. So what went through your mind? Like, what was it about that situation that really, I guess, was able to pause the momentum of addiction for you? Well, for me, it was like, you know, when you have that moment, you're like, wow, I'm, I'm going, I mean, at the time I was, uh, I want to say 20, 19, 20 years old, you know, and you know, I had that moment where I thought to myself, like, wow, I'm going to be a father. Yeah. I'm bringing, I'm bringing another human being into this world and I got to stop doing what I'm doing. Hmm. Right. And, and I did for the most part for a while, you know what I mean? Like I, um, I was married to that lady for eight years and we had a total of three children. Uh, you know, I have a son with her and, and two daughters and, you know, I wanted to be that father. I wanted to be a good example. So you know, I ended up getting a job with Xerox at that time. You know, her father helped me get a job and I worked for that company. I, I was a suit and tie every day, you know, five days a week, go to the office. Um, but something happened again. You know, our marriage started to fall apart, you know. So the only coping skill that I knew at that time was alcohol, hmm. you know, and I wasn't really doing drugs, but I would drink. And, and you know, and especially... If, I'll go back a little bit. When I was married, you know, I wanted to become a firefighter. Yeah. And I went, I went back to school. Um, I was a volunteer fireman at the station near our home and, you know, things were going well and I was testing, but I wasn't getting hired. You know what I mean? And, and I don't know if it was because of that, because it takes a while. I mean, it's a very competitive field. Oh yeah. Firefighter is a big deal. I mean, that's pretty competitive. (laughs) Exactly. And, um, you got to so be like start- in rock solid shape too, don't you? I mean, like, like Oh yeah, like, yeah. absolutely. I went through the fire Academy and, you know, I put myself through the fire Academy and I got in great shape. I was testing for every fire department that would have one, not only in California. I think I tested in Colorado Springs. Uh, I tested in, um, New Mexico for their fire department and, you know, it just wasn't happening. And, um, I think that was part of the strain, you know, two young kids that are married young, having three kids, having a hard time making ends meet. Mm-hmm. And it just started to go south, you know, and, and it just got to the point where, you know, it, the marriage was ending. And at that point, when I knew it was getting towards the end, you know, my drinking took off. And then I was starting to hang out with old friends again and, and doing stuff, you know, doing drugs again, but not bad at that point. But what happened, like the catalyst that, that set me off, you know, as they say, the deep end yeah, was, you know, after our divorce, you know, the only thing that was really holding me together was having those kids on the weekend, my children, 
you know, cause I would make sure when I had them that it was just me and the kids, no one was allowed to come over. I wasn't going to go out. You know what I mean? I didn't ask yeah. my mom to watch the kids cause that was my time with the kids. So, you know, every weekend I would take the kids. So one day I come home from work and, and I'm staying at my mom's house and I remember there was a message that says, Hey, it's Susan. Call me please at this number. And she prefaced it with a two zero two area code and you know, something that in your gut when you know is not right. Cause that is not a California zip code. Right. So when I finally got the courage to call her, I said, yeah, Hey, it's Max. What's going on? She says, you know, I moved to Nebraska and I'm not coming back. Wow. And that, that sent me into a very huge. dark, dark place. And, and right about that time is when my brother got out of prison for the first time. So what was your brother in prison for? Like also um, doing, doing drugs drug, and stuff? Yeah. Drug related stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah. The stuff we do as addicts. And so he had just gotten out of prison and, and what I did, cause my mom had this huge garage. I mean, you could literally fit four cars in that thing. So I said, you know what? I'm going to be cool and turn it into a room, half of it. So I could tell my friends, I literally don't live with mom. I, I have my own, excuse me, my own place in a garage. You know, that was my thinking back then. So I made this room, you know, it had a window, it had a bed, had a little couch, coffee table, you know, just a, a space for me to, to sleep and stuff. And well, as I was in the process of cleaning that garage, um, I remember I was cleaning some stuff out and, and, and the spoon fell out right in this needle and it dawned on me you know what I mean because some of the things I see my brother do I was like I think I know what he's doing right so I went to a friend of mine I bought a a quarter ounce of methamphetamine and got it all ready came you know set it up put it on the that coffee table in my room with that spoon and needle and I called my brother over so he came over and you know there was one way into my room and one way out so I, I stood between him and the door and um, I said, you're going to show me how to do that. And uh, he said, no, I'm not. I said, yeah, you are. And, and we literally went around for two hours and I said, Hey, look, I said, there's two ways you're going to leave this room. It's either you show me how to do that or you're going to have to beat me up. And I don't think the second's going to happen. Hmm. You know, and I remember we stared at each other for a minute and he said, all right. And that's when I was introduced to intravenous drug use. And, uh, I remember he took off that night. We both were high as a kite and I told him not to leave and he ended up leaving. Didn't hear him for him for three days until we got to collect call and he ended up getting arrested that night. And that's what really took me down because at, see at that point after my divorce and even though I had the kids on the weekends, I was drinking a lot still yeah. as much as I could. And it stopped working for me. But when I found methamphetamine, that was it. You know what I mean? I, I, when I did that first shot, it was like, I don't ever have to feel this way again because I didn't want to feel that pain of the divorce, of course, and of uh, mostly not being with my kids. And, and it, that progressed so quick. You know, I was starting to get, you know, arrested for, for little things. And then it turned, you know, I wouldn't take care of my court. So, you know, stuff like not driving or driving without a registration, I would end up getting three days in jail because I didn't show up to court. And yeah, it just spirals out of control. Oh, absolutely. You know, and, and, and infractions turned into misdemeanors and misdemeanors turned into a felony and nine years of that, you know, because what happened is that nine months into that, I get a call from my ex saying, Hey, I'm coming home. The kids would really like to see you, but 
in that nine month period, I had, you had started meth and everything. I'd started meth. I was still drinking. I mean, I was basically doing anything I could not to feel that pain. And by the time she came back and I'll never forget this, she said, I'm back in Cyprus. Come, please come see the kids. They want to see you. And I said, all right. So I borrowed a friend's car. It was during this summer. It was one of those hot summers. And I, I didn't want to miss that meeting with the kids. So I parked in front of her house. I put the seat back and I passed out. And what happened is, is I woke up to a knock on the window, right? And the, you know, the windows are shut. It's obviously hot. I'm sweating. I, and I remember putting the seat up and looking up at her and she just had this look of disgust on her face. Like, that's not the guy, you know what I mean? Like wow. she felt, it was more like disgust and pity, mm-hmm. if that makes sense, you know? Yeah. And, you know, she, she told her husband at the time, Hey, Max is going to spend the night. You know, you don't have a say basically because I wanted to see the kids. But what happened that night, and I will I'll never forget it, I spent the night at her house, but I had felt so much guilt and so much shame. That would be the last time I would see the kids for about seven to nine years. Wow. Because my addiction took over and, you know, I was, drugs and alcohol were more important that even if the kids were in a house next door to me, I would make sure that I could, you know, slither away like you, like I want to say, and I would make sure that you were there sleeping that night or they were at school, but I did not want them to see me that way. And it just progressively got worse and worse and worse to where mom finally got sick of me, kicked me out of the house and I became homeless and running the streets. So if I wasn't in jail, I was on the streets. Wow. And, and it just became this vicious cycle. And what was yeah, the point that turned it around for you? I mean, like, I mean, that's, that's an incredible story. What, at what point were you like, okay, I need to, I'm either going to die. Cause I mean, really at some point you get to the point where you're like, I'm either going to die doing this right? or, you know, I turn around. So what, what was that point for you? Like once you, once you're homeless, what happened after that? Like, when did you get to the point where you're like, all right, I need to, I need to change this. So what happened for me, and I don't know if you've seen my book, the cover, yeah. Of my book. Yeah, it's like so a that, mugshot, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Caravan okay. and PD. So what happened <laughs> is that was my second to last arrest. Okay. And, you know, I had gone to jail so many times. I was on probation. So I had like burned out my county time, as they would say. Like I had no more, like the next step for me was going to prison. Yeah, they're not going right. to put you in jail for free anymore, basically. like Basically, right? So I'd already done a 30-day, a 60-day, a 90-day. Next one's six months. So after that, right, I, I I think I got clean for a little bit. I can't even remember, maybe a week at the most, right? I, and then I end up going back on the run. So I'm upscounding from probation. And what happened was the events that led to like what made me decide like this has got to change so I was picking up a friend in the neighboring city where where I was running around and it's heavily known for its gang activity and because you cross over one street and you're in LA County right and I lived in Orange County so I was picking up this friend who's a known gang member I was picking up for another friend and as we pulled out onto the main street to go back towards my city you know here come the lights and it's the gang unit oh and I'm again driving with no license, a suspended license. I've got no insurance because it's my mom's car and everything I own is in that trunk. <clears throat> so the two deputies, you know, one pulls that the, my friend out. And as the other one, you know, I had that moment where I was just like, this is getting old. 
Hmm. You know, this is, this is ridiculous. Like I'm almost 30 years old or just turned 30. And I'm like, this, this is ridiculous. I'm, this is getting, no, actually I was thinking I was 31. And um, so as the, the sheriff was walking up, I kind of po- poked my head out the head out the window and I said, Hey um, officer, I said, you need to take me in cause I'm done. And he walked up and he said, excuse me. And I said, yeah, I have a warrant. You need to take me in. I said, I'm done. And uh, you know, so he took me, searched me and he goes, you know, I really appreciate your honesty. So I'm going to let your mom come get your car. And I said, thank God, because if you don't, you might as well send me straight to prison because that lady's going to kill me for having her car <laughs> impounded. And um, so I ended up doing five days in L.A. County. And at the time, I don't know if it's still the same, but when you're in a different county or a different city or whatever, they have five days. Whoever the, the agency that wants you, they have five days to come get you. And if they don't come get you on the five days, that like L.A. County would have had to let me go. Gotcha. Well, but, but Orange County, like the good sheriffs they are, came and got me on day five and took me back to Orange County where I would begin my six-month violation. Wow. So kind of fast forward a little bit. And so I go, I go through this process. You know, I, I think I'm in jail for maybe two weeks at this time, right? And, and when you go to jail for a probation violation, you don't get bail in. It's what they call a no bail warrant. And, and you don't even ask because you're not going to, you're on probation and you went up scouting, so you're not going to get any bail. So uh, that's when I first got the first visit from my mom and I'll never forget it. It's like, it's burned into my brain. Like it happened yesterday. You know, we're sitting across the glass from each other and she picked up the phone and looked me right in the eyes and she says, you know, I love you son, but you're no longer welcome at my home. If you come near my home, I will call the police. Wow. If my neighbor, if my neighbors see you, they will call the police. What are you going to do? So the first time in my life, I came up with the best answer that I could ever come up with. And I said, I don't know, mom. And she started crying. I said, what are you crying for? I start crying. She goes, that's the best answer you've ever given me. Because normally she would come visit or whatever. And she would be like, I would be, or I would be like, okay, mom, I promise I'll do better. I'll yeah. Do you're job. Inflating it or lying or in some way. Oh yeah. All those empty promises I made for years, mm. you know, for the years that I was yeah, going you finally back got authentic forth. about it and you just didn't know. I mean, you didn't yeah. know. I had no idea. Right. So then I start going to the court. I'm a month in first time I go to court and it's this judge I've had. Well, he was the commissioner at the time. He's a judge now, unless he's retired, but I had this guy for ever since I got put on probation. This is the judge I would see. He first, he gave me the easiest thing like this PC 1000, which means you go to a few meetings, you get your card signed, you stay clean and they'll expunge your record. Well, I didn't even do that. I would always go on the run. I would always not report to probation. And then they gave me this thing called Prop 36, which is kind of like what drug court is now, if you know anything like that, where it's uh, like a longer, like 18 months to two years, you got to jump through hoops. Mm. You got to go, you know what I mean? And well, I, I didn't even do that. So I'm sitting in front of the judge and he kind of looks at me and he goes, you know, he reads my name off and he says, you know, you haven't done anything I've asked you. So I don't even want to deal with you right now. So I'll see you next month because he knows I'm not going anywhere. Right. So I come back the next month and, you know, they come up with, um, I think it was the Salvation Army. I said, hey, what about the Salvation Army? And, and, and that at longest is a six month program. Hmm. I mean, he didn't even hesitate. He goes, nope, that's not long enough. Wow. 
that was like volunteering, doing volunteer work and stuff through them or no, the ball, uh, the salvation army actually has like a, a, a a drug program, program? a rehab program. They put you to work, you know, you work for them. Everything is done in how, you know what I mean? Like they have everything like the one in Anaheim here in California has its own bowling alley. Oh, wow. Okay. Right. But when they said it's only six months, the judge said, no, that's not long enough. So they send me back. Right. So I go back to jail and then I find out about this place called the Phoenix house and how horrible it is. And so I'm month three, go back to court and, uh, the judge or, and my public defender at the time and probably said, well, what about the Phoenix house? And I remember sitting there and judge is looking at me. I kind of raised my hand. He's like, what do you want? I said, you know, your honor, cause they had this thing where, I called it, I don't know, it's probably something else, but I called it confrontational therapy, right? Where they have a circle and you sit in the middle of it and everyone gets to go around and bash you. Wow, really? Call you any name. It's like almost like the military where they try to break you down. But is everybody in the circle also like an addict, a recovering addict, or are they just? Absolutely. You know, they could be a convict. Yeah. And you can't say anything. You can't say anything. So this is what I find out when I would go back to my cell, right? These guys said, oh, you don't want to do that. And I told the honor, I said, unless you want me to have a new charge, I wouldn't send me there. He just shook his head and he goes, okay, come back next month. We'll figure it out. So come back in month four, right? And they want to send me to this place called the Hope House and they have a timeout bench. I'm like, timeout bench, you know? And again, like when you're in your cell, especially in a big, uh, like like a dorm type setting, you know, we talk, everybody talks, there's yeah. the jailhouse lawyers, you know, everybody, you know what I mean? And they're like, dude, timeout bench. And so judge says, Oh, well, we're thinking about sending you to the hope house and kind of looked the, at him again. The timeout with, bench. What did they do with that? Oh, so you can, if, 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 okay, here's, here's um, an example. So if you know someone that broke the rules and you don't tell on them, you can get that timeout. Any rule infraction or breaking of the rules can get you this timeout bench. Wow. And the length on that bench all depends on the severity of the rule you broke, right? So oh, like geez. not telling on your fellow peer if they did something wrong could get you that timeout bench. And I heard of people of being on that bench for two hours. Wow. It's like elementary school, but <laughs> for Exactly. Yeah. And um and so I told the judge, I said, Really, Your Honor? Timeout bench? I said, uh, that's something I give my kids, you know, a timeout. I said, if you send me there, I'm going to just walk, I'm going to get up and walk off the property. And, you know, and it was kind of funny as I look back now, but my, the public defender at that time looked at me and he just like, you're an idiot. He's like, come on, man. <laughs> I'm trying well, everything. <laughs> yeah, he is. And he's like, you're an idiot, you know? And I'm like, you know, I was angry, of course, like, how dare you disrespect me? But he was right though. When I look back, but mm. And see, and I was at that point where I was ready to tell the judge, look, send me to prison. You know, I've done all this jail time, three hots in a cot, I know how to do. Had you been to prison before, before no. that time? No. No. Just jail and on and off pretty much for all the different. Absolutely. Jail, you know, it, it was getting to that point. Like even now, say I relapse and I go commit a crime, right? Yeah. I don't get to, I, I get to go to county, but it's for a two week period until they transfer me to a prison. Oh, wow. Yeah, because I burned out all my county time, as they say. That burned it out. So, you know, he's like, oh, man, I'm not going to see you. But before he sent me back, this time he says, you know what? Look, you haven't done the thing I've asked. So, one, I'm not letting you 
out of here and onto my streets because you you haven't done anything I've asked of you. And I'll keep you here, you know, excuse me, until I either send you to prison or I find you a place. So here comes, that was like month four. Here's month five. And you're in jail, like, dude, during these months, right? Like you're... Oh, yeah. I'm not going anywhere. I'm sitting yeah. in jail. You know, I should have How was that experience? Out. I mean, was that the longest stretch of jail time that you had? Yes. The six months, How almost was six that? months I mean, that I did. You, what did you, what did that teach you? Like, that's a, to me, that's, I never been to jail. And right. that's just even like two weeks sounds like a long ass time, but six months in jail, like, what did you, did anything change for you during that time? Like, did any, did you learn? Like, was there any big insights from that experience or was it more like, God, I just can't wait to get out of this. No, there here's, here's what started to shift for me is like, so when I got to orange County, you know, and I went through the booking process and I finally got to a bed. Right. So I remember walking up with the sheriffs to get to ready to open the door. And as soon as I walked in, I could hear guys calling my name, the guys that I've been running the street with Max, you know, what up dog. And I remember standing there with the deputy and I kind of looked at him like, wow, <laughs> this is what my life has come to. You know what I mean? Mm. And it was that moment where I said like, things have got to change. But I, like you said earlier, I, but I didn't know how or what I was going to do because you got to understand back then I didn't know what AA was. I didn't know what NA was. I didn't know what treatment was sober living or anything that had to do with recovery. Yeah. Cause I, I'd never been exposed to it. So, you know, and like I said, I knew a lot of the people in there. So yeah, I was locked up. It sucked but we all knew each other. So we made the best of it. If that made sense. It was like, mm-hmm. I, I can't, I can't say it was fun, right. but, but the people I knew made the time pass a little bit easier. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And, you know, I became friends with what they call your bunkie, right? The guy that I shared a bunk with and you know, I was on the top and, and here's what really hit me in the heart, in my mind, right between the eyes is, you know, I was in this poor me mode one night. You know, and I was talking and, you know, like I was just in that big self-pity mode and I was talking about how much I love my kids. And I don't know if you want me to be graphic or not. I'll try not to be, but I mean, whatever. It's all good. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm just trying to give you what happened. So I'll, I'll be PG rated. So we were talking, right. And he's listening to me and, you know, yeah, I love my kids. And, you know, I got silent for a minute and he said, he, I remember him saying, he goes, Hey, homie. He goes, if you love your kids so much, what the F are you doing here then? Hmm. And that stuck. I was like, wow, man, I would slap on the face. (laughs) Oh yeah. And I, I, you know, my first thought was to jump down and go, let's go because you just disrespected me. But what happened was even when I jumped down, I looked at him and he got up and I looked him in the eyes and I said, you're absolutely right. And he gave me a hug. Wow. What what I mean? And, you know, I don't know what happened to that guy. I mean, we stayed, you know, pretty close while we were in there. Uh, you know, we had these big dreams. And, and then so I go back to court and it's about month five, the middle of month five. And I have a new public defender hmm. and see it this whole time that this whole time that I was in jail. I had met this other guy that had come from the place where I ended up going. His name was uh, Bobby. And the last thing I heard this guy's was back in prison. I haven't seen him in years, but 
He's like, yeah, Max, all you got to do, man, is go to, it's called Pacific Park. All you got to do is pay your rent, stay clean and sober, go to your meetings and they'll leave you alone. And I'm thinking to myself, cool. I think I can handle that, you know, but in my head, I'm still like, what are meetings? I don't know what you're talking about. So, so I um, told my public defender about this place. So she went over to the, cause when you're in that environment, like when you're on a violation, you always have probation, the, the DA and then the public defender or whatever. And, and so she went over there and, and at first it was a no, well, no, they're not probation approved. And then, so the, the, my attorney at the time asked if we could, she could speak to the judge and then probation. And so they, they were up there for a few minutes talking and uh, she came back and she says, you know, I think I got you something. So judge told me to stand up and he said, well, Mr. Nace, you know, I'm going to, um, even though it's not approved by probation, I'm going to send you there. Wow. And all this time I'm thinking to myself, okay, 90 days, six months, maybe he changed his mind and then I could be doing what I, I'm good at, you know? Yeah. So as I'm, am I, as I'm listening to him, he says, yeah, I'm going to send you there, but I'm going to send you there for a year. And if you oh. mess up one millimeter, I'm going to send you to prison. And part of me wanted to raise my hand again and say like, what? No, nah, I don't think so. But I kept my hand down. I kept my mouth shut. And so like right at the end of month five, going into the sixth month, the place, you know, at that time didn't have a bed open and then they finally picked me up and that began my journey into recovery. And I remember going to this house and, uh, you know, I thought I'm looking around and I'm just like, wow, I I didn't even have any idea what I was in for. Yeah, no expectations. I mean, you never had experienced anything like that before. Right. And and back then, you know, like, like I said, 15 years ago, whatever it was there wasn't really like resources like there are now, right? Like today, would you say that, that, that there's an easier time? I mean, obviously addiction is, is not an easy thing, especially if you are dealing with something very serious, but would you say that it's a lot more accessible, like the resources and the treatments and the solutions are easier to come by than whatever, 15 years ago? You know, I think I, I believe so because there there was resources back then. It just, you had to learn how to find them. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And I had no intention of finding a guy. I didn't want to be sober, but now there is a lot of resources out there and a lot of people willing to help people get into treatment and, and you know, do stuff like that. So, you know, I started that journey and I remember it was nighttime and I hadn't had a cigarette in like six months. So I was up all night smoking. I think I went through a whole pack in like one night. Wow. You know, because I was sitting on the balcony where my room was and I could oversee the street and I could see the cars driving by. And I just remember sitting there going like, you know, when you're like something new, it was like something new again. I'm like, wow, I'm actually free. You know what I mean? Hmm. So I remember going to bed about three o'clock in the morning, three thirty, And then it just felt like I went to sleep and all of a sudden the lights get flicked on and this gentleman with a loud, deep voice is. 515 gentlemen time to get up we're going to a meeting and i was like oh wow you know what i mean like what do you mean it's only five Boot camp style. <laughs> exactly yeah get ready get on the van so you know my first introduction to for me was where we had to go was a 6 a.m meeting of alcoholics anonymous and i remember walking in that door and the lady i didn't even know i mean we're friends today she's probably 20 i want to say she's 25 to 28 years sober now. Wow. But I didn't know her then, right? I walked in, she gave me a hug and said, welcome. And I gave her this look like, 
she was some demon or you know <laughs> what I mean I, I wasn't getting hugs where I came from you know? yeah <laughs> and and that was my introduction and you know and it's I didn't know what was in store for me but I knew that I had to do something different and did I do not in the, I relapsed four times when I was in that place. And, uh, cause I rushed through the 12 steps, you know, they said you have two weeks to get a sponsor and you got to start working the steps because we'd have this meeting. What we, we, it was our Wednesday night house meeting. And, um, we had another name for it because usually someone got kicked out that night because what the owner would do is he would sit at this podium and he would go down the list of names and he would ask you a series of questions. Do you have a sponsor? Uh, what step were you on? How many meetings are you going to? Are you got to, you know, like if you said, quiz pretty much right. And if you said two no's, his automatic answer was pack your stuff and get out and wow. we'll call your, we'll call your PO as much as I dislike that guy, that man structure saved my life. Hmm. <laughs> so I, after four relapses and I'm kind of, you know, giving you the juicy part. So after four relapses, after the last one, is when I really realized like I really have to do something different or I'm going to either die doing this or I'm going to go to prison for a long time. Yeah. You know, and I think at that moment I like to call it God surrendered me. Like I became a yes man to whatever I had to do. And I remember the, the director of the place who never came see, this is where I believe in divine intervention. And I remember her coming to the house and this was right after the house manager saw my face, knew that I was loaded and just said, you know, I need you in the office, which meant they were going to test me. And if I tested her, they were going to call my PO and kick me out, whatever. And she comes knocking on the door. It's a Sunday afternoon and I'll never forget it. And, um, so I answer the door and I step outside. Her name was Sue. And I remember she's looking at me and she's like, how are you doing? I don't think she knew I was high, but before I could say a lie, I told her I did it again. And this lady gave me the biggest hug. And she said, you know what, get out of here, pack a bag for a few days, come back in three days and test clean. And, you know, I've been clean and sober ever since. Wow. That's insane, man. That's incredible. And that was how many years ago, this exact memory that you just shared? Uh, just over 16 years ago. Wow. Well, uh, yeah, because of what happened after I left, I went to a motel that night and I was still on probation actually. And, um, I, I stayed that night. That was the 24th. I stayed the night in a motel and the police came and you know, when you're on probation, you have no rights. So they came knocking on the doors. There are so-and-so here. I go, yeah, that's me. Uh, and I, I remember they asking it, can we search your room? And, you know, I kind of looked at the officers like, yeah, if I told you no, really, like, right, like, you're, like <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean? I go, sure, because I knew I, I, I had nothing on me. So they searched my room like with a fine tooth comb and they said, well, what are you doing here? And I said, well, I had relapsed. I was honest with them. And I said, they told me I had to leave for three days and I can go back. And they were like, okay. And they took off. So the next day, you know, I, I don't know what I did. I kind of hung out. And I remember that night I went to a, um, I got a call from a friend who had just graduated from that place. He was two years sober, engaged to get married. You know, we were roommates actually when he was there. So he called me up, said, I heard what happened. He goes, why don't you come to my house? Um, we'll feed you. You can sleep on the couch. And then in the morning you can go back. So that was like the, I got there like in the morning of the 26th. And I mean, the reason I know these dates, cause so I remember sitting in his house, they fed, you know, they fed me dinner. 
his wife and our future wife at the time, you know, they were talking to me like, what's your plan? You know, they were just asking me questions. You okay. And, and I was really still coming down. So my mind was constantly like racing, you know what I mean? Like, what yeah, am I yeah. going to do? You know, I'm thinking they're going to call my PO. So when I go back, he's going to be sitting there waiting for me to handcuff me and take me to jail. You know what I mean? All those crazy things. And, and I'll never forget. It was the 26th and it was about 10 minutes or so before midnight. You know, we were done talking. I'm getting ready to crash out. I hear him close the door. And um, all of a sudden, I hear the door open again, and the lights come on. He turns on the light, and he says, get up. And I said, what? Yeah, he says, get on your knees. And you got to understand where my mind was when he said that. I kind of looked at him like, uh, excuse me, but your fiance is that way? <laughs> and, 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 I, and that's the truth. And I, he said, no, man, you're an idiot. I said, no. He goes, what we're going to do is we're going to get on our knees. We're going to say the third and seventh step prayer. We're going to say a prayer together and then you can go back in the morning, you know? And I said, wow. Okay. So that was like the first time a man ever wanted to pray with me. You know what I mean? Mm, yeah. So we prayed and I'll never forget. It was about five minutes after midnight on the 27th. And that has been my clean and sober date ever since. Wow. Yeah. And that's, that was just the beginning. So I ended up going back I ended up staying a total of 14 months at this sober living, ended up moving in with one of the house managers who wanted to move out. We had, we rented an apartment together, stayed clean and sober. You know, I've been through a lot of ups and downs. And I think for me, more has happened in my recovery than in my addiction. Mm. Because mm-hmm. I, I act in what, in, in the sense that I get to feel everything that goes on, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like there's no escaping. And so instead of telling you this whole long story of things that have happened, so, you know, I'll start with three days after I turned 13 years sober, my sister would pass of Parkinson's. Eight months later, my brother would take his own life and lose his battle to addiction. Jesus Christ. Six months later on Thanksgiving day to the date, my mom would die and pass on Thanksgiving day. And then that following Monday, I would put my youngest daughter in treatment. Wow. Right. So that, that is part. And then this past at the end of last year, right. Um, our granddaughter was born in May. She passed about a week before Thanksgiving or actually right around before. Yeah. About a few days before Thanksgiving at three months and one day old. Jeez. What happened to that? I mean, how did that happen? Well, first they thought it was Skid. I don't know if you remember that movie, The Boy in the Bubble with John Travolta. Mm. He was born without an immune system. And he mm. was, and they call him the boy in the bubble because he had to live inside of a total, like, bubble. Like, he could yeah, not artificial leave his, environment. Exactly. It had to be very clean. The air had to be pure. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then what they found out is that she had this thing called mitochondrial disease, which there's no known cure and they don't know oh, why. Man, they, yeah. Right. So, you know, she passed a week later, my son at 30 days sober, when he finally got sober, would have a massive stroke. And then while in the hospital would have two more. I got to watch him get put, you know, I watched, I actually went into the emergency with my stepdaughter and watched my little grandbaby get put on life support. Then I had to watch my son get put on life support, but now he's doing much better. He's truly a miracle. I mean, he still has his speech to work on, but he's walking, 
Uh, he can talk a little bit and it's just night and day. But wow. this is this, this is the stuff that I've been through amongst other things. And I want to give it all away because if people, I would like people to get my book and read and find out like. That's all in your I, book, Fearless Happiness? It's all in my book, except that last two part. That's where book number two is coming in. I got Where does that name speech. come from? Fearless Happiness. What is that? Where'd you get that like name from? I, you know, I was sitting one day because um, I was working with Brian K. Wright. So, you yeah. know, you're a fellow friend of ours. And I have known Brian and Chris Whitehead for like seven years now. And I've always wanted to write a book, you know, when I yeah. got sober, I said, I want to write a book. And, um, well, you certainly so, got enough material for it, man. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I would start a project and then I would stop, you know, and, and this kind of went on for years between me and Brian and, and how that book came apart is when I lost those three family members in that just over a year period. God, that's insane, man. That's and I was on my way home from Minnesota. Actually, I just broken off my relationship with my ex fiance. And I said to myself, I said, okay, I got to write a book. So you lost four people pretty much. I mean, your relationship with your fiance, she didn't die, but still that was something that you lost in that Correct. one year period. Were you tempted at all? to like relapse and to just be like, fuck this. I'm, you know, I'm just going to go get high right now. Like, you know, like, were you tempted? No. And that's what I'm going to get to that part. Right. So I said, I got to write this book and it became very cathartic to write that book. It very healing for me to get that stuff on paper. And yeah. here's why I didn't, because I, after my last relapse, I made this promise to myself and to God that I would never pick up another drug or a drink. Right. So when I went through the steps again with my sponsor after my last relapse, you know, I went through each step as thoroughly and as honestly as possible. Yeah. Even that four step where I let out everything, you know what I mean? When I went through that four step. So during that time and in these last two, these last two things that happened to our family, here's like what I like to tell the guys that I sponsor or clients that I work with as their counselor. I said, here's the, here's the magic that happens when you work those steps. And I would share that story with them. And I said, and I being completely honest, I said, not once did I ever think about picking up a drink or a drug. I might've been angry, but not one thought passed through my head about picking up another drink or a drug. Cause then what, what good would I be to my family? Yeah. You know what I mean? And yeah, I have those questions. Okay. Why God, you know, three months, a three month old baby, but I, I do believe that God has a plan for each and every one of us and, and we all have purpose. And I knew that if I romance that thought that possibly could have happened, but it didn't even creep into my head Yeah, because, you know, because when I got sober, I vowed to create new habits by going to meetings. Like my first three years clean and sober, I went to two meetings a day, every day, regardless if I worked, <clears throat> excuse me, if I worked or not, because that's what I needed to do. I'm not saying that that's for everybody. But I know me, so if I didn't create new habits and, and lasting habits, then I would put myself at risk. But do I need to go to a meeting every day now at 16 years clean and sober? Absolutely not. It's about balance now, right? It's family, my recovery, my work, and stuff like that. So, yeah. Do you, do you believe that recovery is a thing with an end date or is it a lifetime deal? Is that like oh, the practice? It's like your practice pretty much. Or is, is there like a 
okay, like I'm done recovering. I'm back to whatever, whatever normal is. But I mean, how do you see recovery? I believe in that, that recovery is a journey, not a destination. Yeah. You know, and for me, because I've witnessed things over the years, not only as a counselor for the last 11 years, but as a clean and sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And, you know, I have friends in other fellowships, but what I have noticed and what I've when I'm paying attention is the people who think they're done because I've got 10 years or I've got 20 years, I got 25 years. Hmm. I've seen them come back as newcomers and sometimes worse. I've seen them not make it back. Wow. You know, and, and some people think it's a crutch that that's fine. You can think whatever you want, but it's, it's just what a way a of you know, going to meetings and the 12 oh, steps, gotcha. you know, you got people that there's always the naysayer, but you know what? I'm not going to argue. It's worked for me for 16 years. I'm not going to fix something that's not broke. Yeah. And plus here's what I learned too: the support that I got through these last three and a half years with all those, you know, the deaths of my four family members is the friendships I've made are priceless. You know what I mean? People that truly some that if I need help will help me with expecting nothing in return. Well, that's what they say is addiction. I mean, all the most recent stuff about addiction is that it's not the substances as much as it is the lack of connection that people have. And they're basically masking some sort of pain. I mean, you have that rat park study that was done that was, you know, popularized with the rats having, access to all the whatever food and everything they wanted. And the ones that, that had access to everything, they didn't want the cocaine on the, on the levers, but the ones that were isolated and basically alone and feeling whatever, you know, isolated, uh, they, they needed that sense of connection. And so the substances basically provided that. And so a lot of times it seems that when you can have that support, especially I guess for somebody who's suffered with addiction you are going to go through, it's, it's not possible to avoid life crap, right? I mean, you're going to, people are right. going to die in your life, you know, stuff's going to happen. So especially if you've had a problem with addiction, I'm imagining that having that support system, uh, regardless, just to help you weather changes in life, right? Like you divorces, deaths in the family so that you don't relapse so that you don't go back to, let's say friends that are doing drugs and you're like, all right, let's, let's get wasted because, you know, I just got divorced or something like that. So I imagine the support and, element is probably one of the power, most powerful aspects of it. Yeah. There's a very therapeutic value to having that kind of support system. You know what I mean? Cause you know, you're not alone. Hmm. You'll find people that have gone through the same things if you have, you will find people that have gone through worse than you have and have gotten through to the other side without having to put a substance because you're right. I mean, it's about connection, right? When I'm in my disease, I'm totally disconnected mm. from anything and everyone. Right? I'm, on, I'm, as they say, I'm in full flight from reality because I don't want to feel the pain or the trauma, whatever. And everybody's reasons are different. You know what I mean? And, but when I dove into the program and made those friends and, and did the things that was asked of me, I mean, I have made some really, really powerful connections, which led to even more powerful connections. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, not all my friends are in recovery, but the majority are. But look, I mean, doing the work has led to this at this moment, you know, doing this interview with you. Yeah. Is, and to writing me, a is, book and, and inspiring other people and speaking and coaching and helping them. I mean, that's, they often say, you know, I often 
say that, well, not just I say it, but it's something that I echo that I've heard a lot, which is our greatest pains are sometimes our greatest sources of purpose. Absolutely. You know, I mean, if you hadn't gone through all those things, you wouldn't have an amazing story that you could relate to other people who are also suffering and, and help them out and inspire other people and write a book and write a second book and, you know, do all the things that you're doing. Right. And it's just been, it's just been an amazing journey and at times definitely a roller coaster, but I wouldn't trade it for the world. And like I said, the magic that happened for me is that, you know, after losing my three family members, my granddaughter, watching my son uh, be put on life support, I didn't think about drinking or using one bit. My reaction was to reach out and ask for help and get wow. the support I needed, you know, and, and back then when I was in my, I, I was solo. I, I was good by myself. And yeah, I know I'm sure you've heard it, but I, I was that guy. Like I could be in the middle of a room of say a hundred people and still feel all alone. Yeah. But that's quite opposite today. You know what I mean? Yes. I enjoy my quiet time. I enjoy my alone time, but I have a wonderful wife, you know, wonderful kids. My stepkids have welcomed me into their family. Like it's, it's just amazing. So like, why would I want to trade that stuff in to go, maybe it'll be different this time. Yeah. Which is, which is the lie us addicts and alcoholics will tell ourselves. Well, it's kind of like the gambler's fallacy too. You know, like when you go gambling, you think like, Oh, the next time this will be it. Like I'm really going to win, but it's the same odds. I mean, you're not, you know, one out of a thousand is still going to be one out of a thousand every time you play. It's not like you get better odds by playing more. <laughs> right. Exactly. Cause eventually, uh, it, you know, your card comes and you're done. Yeah. You know, for instance, my brother, I mean, man, that's, that's crazy, dude. I mean, yeah. And we were that. close. He had eight years of sobriety at one point. So, you know what I mean? Mm. It, it, I'm not exempt from going back if I don't keep doing the work that I need to do. And for me, and it's try to help as many people as I can and, and trust for me, it's God that he's going to get me through anything. Hmm. What do you think of this new generation? I mean, like one thing that scares me, like I don't have kids and part of me, wants kids. I would, you know, I was close at one point to having them or let's say being in a situation where I really could have created that. But I, you know, part of me wants to have kids, but it's like, man, every time I look around this planet, like it's just, it seems like such a crazy freaking time to bring a kid into the world, especially with all the things we're talking about with disconnection. And I feel like these kids that are growing up today, you know, they have like, I don't know how many times I can count, but like I'll be in public at an airport or somewhere else. And you see these parents that are whatever my age in their early thirties or maybe early twenties, mid twenties, whatever. And they're trolling around their kids and the kid has, it's like five years old and he's got a fucking iPad he's looking at already. I'm like, dude, you know, like by, I know. The, by the time you're 15, you're already like, like training your nervous system to like click on buttons and get that dopamine hit and be a little rat. that's just tapping away, not to mention your vision, not to mention your addictive personality of, you know, it's like, Holy smokes, dude. I think that in the future we're facing a really huge wave of, of like, you know, like we talked about at the very beginning of this interview with, with access to everything and like drugs and how, all these things are being synthesized so easily like that crocodile drug, you know, or whatever. It's right. so many, I don't know. It's, it's a scary world. What do you think about that? I mean, are, are the solutions and education at pace with 
all of the negative things that are potentially there for kids. You know what I'm saying? Like, is there, is the negative stuff growing faster and more spiraling out of control than let's say the, the AA meetings and the resources and the solutions and all this stuff? Like, are we prepared to handle what I see as an epidemic in the next 10, 15 years for this new generation of connection issues, right? So if addiction is caused by connection issues, you know, we're looking at a huge epidemic of disconnection. Right. And I, I think you've already said it. We're already seeing it, right? Yeah, right. And I'll speak for myself. I've been guilty of that, like where I get so engrossed what's going on on Facebook or, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah, I know. It's designed uh, to keep you in. I mean, you, you find yourself scrolling for like 20 minutes. You're like, what the fuck am I just doing here? <laughs> yeah, right. So what I believe, you know, I mean, I'm not, I wasn't a perfect parent, but it's up to us parents to do something different. You know yeah. what I mean? To go back to those old fashioned values, like where my mom would have us sit at the table and we'd have dinner together and stuff mm-hmm. like that. You know what I mean? I know that technology makes it easier because, and the reality is both parents have to work nowadays. You know, there's yeah. not always a, a parent at home to be with the kids when they get home from school. So I, I, I don't know. I'm not an expert in that area. It's just what I see. You know what yeah. I mean? Even when in the treatment, you know, the first focus is where's my phone? Mm. you know when do I get my phone back I'm like as a counselor I'd go you know you're here to save your life and all you can worry well I gotta call my girlfriend or I gotta call my wife and I get that we're not taking your phone away for forever why don't Mm. you take this time to really take a look and see where your life has gone and let's come up with a plan to make it better you know what I mean and I mean we're all guilty of getting engrossed on social media or tv I don't watch the news anymore I oh, just I don't. don't I mean, it's it, it's just too depressing, right? Yeah, <laughs> right. So well, we're, we could say you could say we're addicted to to fear. You know, like I mean, it's 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 constantly pushing your button about holy crap, what's what's going to happen, and this, and it's stimulating you in some way, right? I mean, it's right. It's not educating you. It's just trying to scare you, and we're kind of addicted to that fear of oh my gosh, what might happen? Right. So, exactly. I don't even so. I think it's going to, it has to start with us, our, ourselves. You know what I mean? Like say guys like you and I who are trying to create connection with the world and let people know that, Hey, we're out here. Like instead of keeping your face in a phone, let's, let's have a, let's have a conversation. You yeah. know what I mean? Let's talk about life. How's your life going? How's your life going? You know, what, what are your interests? I mean, you find that a lot. It doesn't happen, you know, because parents are tired when they get home you know, worse, it could be a dysfunctional family where, you know, the parents are drug addicted or whatever the case may be, or they're addicted to their career. So, you know, the work doesn't stop when they get home, they go straight to the office in the house and they start working. I don't know. I, I that's why I created, you know, that's why I wrote the book one to, to share my story and two, why I created the Facebook group I did on Facebook is to, to reach out to What's not just Facebook addicts, it's called fearless happiness and it's spelled with a Y. Yeah. And, and then there's my page, my max is that for re- recovering page. addicts or for anybody? It's, for, it's for anybody. anybody, anybody who wants to join. It's a free group. You know, you're going to hear. So, cause part of it is yes, to break that stigma of addiction, right? Like we're yeah. not all the, the drunk that's sitting on the curb with a brown paper bag or, or the person you see with a needle in their arm. I mean, people can and do recover every day. I'm living proof. I have friends that are living proof and we all lead, lead 
productive, happy lives. So, but I, when I started it, it was to, I wanted to bring everybody together. You know, mm -hmm. anybody who's interested, like see what's going on. I mean, you can join the group. It's a free group. Um, <clears throat> and then I started my positive page where I, you know, I started that years ago and I've tried to change the name to match my group, but they won't let me Facebook for some reason, but it's, it's all you the same just keep thing. Trying. I think eventually they will. I, I had the same problem. Oh, did you? Okay. So yeah. it's just, um, you know, it's just a place for people to share their stories. And, you know, when I want to bring connection to the world, you know what mm -hmm. I mean? I, I want yeah, people I that. that, you know, cause I know I would do that for, you know, when I was in my addiction, I didn't want to talk to anybody. You know, if I wasn't at a drug house doing my drugs, I was at home isolating and hiding out in my room. Do you think shame plays a big part with, with addiction? Guilt and shame are the two most, and in, in my experience, are the biggest feelings and emotions that keep addicts out there. Hmm. What what helped you get over your shame to the point where you made a change in the in the way you saw things? I mean, you to to go through all the stressful things you went through, and to like after like when you were in recovery, like with all those people dying, all those family members dying in, in that short proximity of time. And to not be tempted to go back shows that your characters change, like your value system changed. So at what point or what helped is maybe a better question. What helped you shift your perspective? Because shame, I'm guessing, shame and guilt, like you said, were really what were anchoring you back into that addictive behavior, those choices and everything else and justifying those choices. So what helped you? get over that. I mean, guilt and shame are so powerful of an emotion, especially when you're attached like a drug and something that's habitual to it. So how did you, you know, what helped you get through it? Well, for me, it was finally doing those things that my sponsor suggested is the 12, going steps. To the 12 steps, going to meetings. And what I was specifically told, he goes, like, there's a saying in the program, if you want what we have, do what we do. So I, for mm -hmm. me, I always wanted to have, you know, a, a healthy relationship, not only with my kids, but with a future, you know, wife or whatever. So what my sponsor suggested is when you go to your men's stag and my men's stag that I was a part of for 10 years on a good night could be 50 to a hundred guys. Oh, wow. That's big. So, and he always suggested, he goes, watch the guys that are married or in long-term relationships, hang out with them, see how they treat their significant other, and you're gonna know. So I would, I'd start hanging out with these guys with 20, 25 years that have been in 20, 25 year marriages. And because I'm the kind of guy that's like, okay, you're cool in front of me, but I wanna, you know, I wanna kind of know what you're doing behind the doors, right? And, yeah. you know, when these guys would invite me to barbecues and at their homes, and, and I watched how they treated their family, it's like, okay. That's why I'm doing this because nothing changes if nothing changes. If I don't do something different, I'm going to continue living in that guilt and shame and I'm going to let that rule even in recovery. Mm. You know, if I don't change my ways and change my thinking, it's not going to be pretty. It's like I said, I was tired of being sick and tired, if that makes sense. So I wanted something different for my life and I wanted something different for my kids. And so, you know, I was gone. I told you about nine years out of their lives. I've been back 16 now. Wow. That's great. So now, yeah. How old so are I've your kids bad. now? Uh, my youngest is going to be 20 in April who does not speak to me um, for whatever reason. Uh, my youngest daughter is going to be, 
I want to say 25 next month. And then this November, my oldest daughter will be 27. And then my son, who I just spoke about, he's 30, going to be 31 in March. Wow. Congrats, man. I mean, that's, that's, that's great. It's an achievement. Thank you. You know, another question here, this is kind of a little bit, I guess, in a different direction, sort of, but what do you think about the legalization of different drugs like weed? You know, I had an interesting conversation with one of my friends about this in that, you know, at first it's like, oh, okay, there's good things that it could be, you know, legalized and then there's less chance for it to be laced with crap and there, you know, the drug dealers will be out of competition, whatever, all that kind of stuff. But then, you know, there's the other argument of, well, then all the people who, let's say, are lacking, you know, connection or they're having some sort of problems and they don't know how to really deal with them. They don't have the inherent mindset skills or the habits or the character to handle difficult changes. Then that'll just only enhance society's problems because people who shouldn't maybe be turning to substances are going to have a lot easier time accessing them and it'll derail society. So, I mean... I don't have necessarily a stance either way or on it. I think both are plotted, but what do you see? Cause you know, they're doing research on magic mushrooms. They're doing research on MDMA for PTSD. Right. You know, mm-hmm. There's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff like that, especially weed. The mostly that's probably going to be legalized at some point in the near future. So do you think, and you know, to kind of add to this, there was a study done in Portugal with heroin, which was very interesting where, uh, they had, I think Portugal had like one of the highest heroin epidemics. Like it was out of control. It was like 40% of the population was doing it or some crazy shit. Um, and I don't remember when exactly this was, but definitely probably within the last 20 years. But anyway, so they had this huge problem. And so what they decided to do was to legalize it. They legalized heroin and then they created all these treatment centers. They gave support, community, all these things that we were talking about. And, uh, you know, long story short, like it, the problem went away, you know, so it was a very interesting study on legalization, you know, so it's like, okay, you know, going back to the whole rat park problem, it's, it's more the connection, but do you see any impact with, let's say weed, for example, right? Let's take weed and we legalize weed. Do you see that, uh, being, being a problem, especially with the way that society's moving, like we said, with technology and this new generation and disconnection and all that stuff. Do you see that? just adding to the fire of the disconnection that people already have. <laughs> uh, you know what? It could go either way, but see Holland has been, le- they've legalized drugs for years. Yeah. And they got one of the lowest crime rates in the world. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, I mean, I don't have a stance either way. I just know for me, whether a drug is legal or not, I can't touch it. It doesn't make a difference. Right. It doesn't make a difference. Yeah. Right. So, you know, I know there's a lot of medicinal purposes for, for marijuana that have truly helped people with like glaucoma, cancer, to ease their pain. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And if it's regulated, maybe it is different. But I mean, I'm just speaking for me. I, I wouldn't take that chance, even if, it, if marijuana was legal and it was like, go ahead. And it's not considered a relapse. I still wouldn't do it. Do you think it's a gateway drug? I mean, a lot of people kind of it was mine yeah it was definitely it was definitely mine how so I can tell you. How, how exactly was it for you in your case right so for me it was like i liked the, that feeling that marijuana produced right yeah so if i you know as i kept getting deeper and deeper it was like okay i liked how alcohol made me feel mm-hmm. 
So then when, it, you know, cocaine and friends are going, yeah, this stuff's really cool. You know, I said, oh, okay, marijuana is cool and, and alcohol is cool. This must be even better. Hmm. And of course I loved it. You know what I mean? Until that got out of control. And then when I met, when I did meth for the first time, it was like, that was it. You know what I mean? And, and I come to realize that I have a family history of addiction and it's been proven scientifically that people with addiction have that gene in them. It's in their DNA that predisposes them to addiction. And, you know, I found as I got sober and talked to family members, I have it on both sides of the family. Oh, wow. You know, I have a brother who's 36 years clean and sober and very active in his program. So, you know, but all the girls on the side of my, you know, all my sisters never was a problem for him. And if it was, they stopped it and never went back where the guys, you know, all of and us. And you said your son, you said your son was uh, dealing with that too, but now he's sober, right? Yeah. He was 30 days sober when he had that stroke. Man, that was from doing drugs. Uh, basically. Well, bad, bad genetics, you know, poor, poor diet, bad yeah, genetics yeah, yeah. on top of, you know, and then throw drug use on top of that, which kind of exacerbated everything. Yeah. Wow. That's crazy, man. Any big, any big goals that you are shooting for? I mean, you got the book, Fearless Happiness. Is that on uh, Amazon? We're gonna Amazon. Link the, we'll link the website yes. too. But, but any, anything coming up for you? Any, any goals you have? Obviously, you wrote the book now. Anything coming up as far as uh, maybe talks or anything? Any goals any of yours? What is, what's your goal this year? It's 2020 this year. It's a big, it's a big ass year. So what, what's a big goal for you this year? 2020 goal for this year is first to get my website up and, and, and start my membership area where I do group coaching, you know, which yeah anybody can join. But my biggest goal is to speak on stages this year. Nice. I don't care. You know, I want to speak at schools. I want to speak to corporations. I want to speak to police and fire. I want to carry a message to everybody that'll listen. I don't know if you know, but it, you know, when you're a police officer and a fireman, you don't have those kind of resources because you're not supposed to be doing that. You know what I mean? Oh yeah, for I, sure. Yeah. But I want to be able to speak to people and show them there is a way out and that they too can be fearless in their pursuit of happiness and, and know, like you said, life's going to happen. Yeah. We can't control it, you know, and I've been proof. And I think for me, and going through those things, I think I can help people and show them how they can break through those things mm-hmm. and continue on life's path and ha- find happiness and, and live in purpose on purpose. And, and you know what I mean? And, and, and live a happy, exciting life. If you want to say, if you were to no, I love it, man. I think that's, that's fucking awesome. If you were to summarize one sentence for somebody who's listening right now, who's struggling with addiction, who maybe has relapsed, who, you know, is questioning they're in that, that not so good of a place. What would you tell them? What I would tell them is reach out, ask for help. Because what you'll find is that there's going to be many hands coming back at you Hmm. to help you on your path to recovery. Don't be afraid. I mean, and that's what holds us a lot back from, you know, we're so, like you said, guilt and shame is so bad. And that fear of, of rejection, you know, a lot of us go through is that like, no one's going to be there, but I can guarantee you there's, there are so many people that are willing to help that don't want anything in return, but except to see you clean and sober. Wow. 
That's powerful. Powerful stuff. Thank you. Well, one last question for you, buddy. It's been, uh, it's been real, man. Like, thank you. This has been a great interview. Your story oh, thank is pretty you. awesome. And I hope, uh, I hope you really share it with the world. I'll do my part, <laughs> but <laughs> thank you for having me on here. One more question for you. What are you most grateful for right now? That is a great question. What I'm the most grateful for. God, there's so many things but right now at this moment is the life I'm living right now, mm. you know, and to be honest, yeah, it has to, I mean, and that includes everything in it. And if you would have asked me, say you asked me 16 years, we're friends, tutoring, you're like, Hey, you know, you're going to have a home, a beautiful wife. Yeah. You're going to go through stuff, but you're going to be, you're going to be doing okay. I would have told you tutor, you need to, you know, whatever you're doing, you need to share with me because it must be really good. <laughs> Because, uh, yeah, you're, as they would say, you're tripping. Right. <laughs> Something's right. wrong with you. But I'm, I'm really grateful for this life with all its challenges and, and struggles and tragedies. You know, the, the life I lead, you know, I'm not the richest man. I'm not the poorest man. But in my heart and my eyes, I'm the richest man there is right now because I have this amazing support group and the most amazing family. and my wife, you know, and the friends I'm making like yourself now, like these people that truly care about other people and want to carry a message of hope. I mean, I can't ask for anymore. You know, they say it's like if you have food in your stomach, a warm place to sleep, some friends, you know, some, some family, like you're pretty much as rich as they get in this world. You know, we, I've seen so many people that are wealthy beyond means, but they're, uh, they're suffering, you know, inside, or let's say their body sucks and they're in a wheelchair for the rest of their life. It's like, man, you know, it's like, shit, there's just the simple things that we take for granted. Like again, food, shelter, friends, family, you know, it's like, if you have those and you got your health, like you're good. You're, yeah. you're, you're about as good as it gets, you know? So exactly. I mean, and a lot of those people that have a lot of money have been proved to me that that does not buy happiness. Yeah, absolutely. You know what I mean? They're some of the most miserable people I've ever met. And, you know, and I try to keep it simple for the clients I work with and, and, and the guys I sponsor, I always tell them, I go, look, if you woke up clean and sober and you went to bed clean and sober, you had a perfect day in recovery. Yeah. You know, so one day at yeah, a time, one day at a time. And I feel blessed to uh, like be here with you. I, I like, again, I thank you for having me on your show and absolutely, man. That's awesome. And I, I feel blessed to be able to, you know, as something is here's, here's the thing, something, something is that we take for granted, like our speaking, mm-hmm. you know, watching my son have to relearn just has made me really grateful that as I look back on my life, all the things I put in my body and put myself through that I'm still, I'm here talking to you. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Makes me really grateful that I I have the ability to speak. I know. Can you imagine like having to be hooked up to a machine and whatever, have a computer speak for you or something? I mean, it's just like all these things that we have again, like if you have a healthy functioning body, you can talk, you can use your hands, you can chew, you can eat. Like we take all that stuff for granted. And, uh, and it's so magical. It really is, man. And you don't realize how magical it is until it stops working. 
you know, right. so or it's it, taken away. Yeah. That's the, that's the double-edged sword we live with in life, I think. And I think in that sense, addiction and recovery and that whole journey, um, you know, has a lot to teach you because there's, there's a lot of pain there, but from the pain, you find a lot of purpose. Absolutely. So, you know, whatever your addiction is, I mean, it could be drugs, but th- we live in an addictive society. I mean, we are addicted to every fucking thing we do, like computers, yeah. phones, food, you know, food, food yeah, exactly, exactly. sex. I mean, it's, it's just everywhere, you know I mean? So I think that we we're breeding ourselves to be more addictive and, and uh, with that will, will come a journey of pain and suffering, but it will also, if you come out of it in, in a productive sense, you really find a lot of purpose and discipline and freedom absolutely you know so well man it's been real dude it's this has been a great interview thank you so much for sharing your story it's been uh it's been awesome to hear, to hear it and to create a space i like i said i'll do my part and put you out there but i, I hope you really get out there and, and reach your goals this year it's gonna be knockout can't wait to see it thank you so much you too i i wish you the best and like i said i'm honored to be here so thank you so much All right, guys. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode, man. What a trip. Like, seriously, a great, great interview. I love Max's story of triumph through adversity. I mean, that's what it's all about. And again, if you know anybody struggling with addiction, if if you're struggling, if you, you know, if you're worried about relapse, whatever, I love that statement that Max made at the end, which was basically, hey, listen, you just reach out your hand. There are people out there that can and want to help you without anything in return. So that is super, super important to remember. Share this episode, guys, if you know anybody struggling with this or would find this valuable in their life. I'm happy to get Max's message out there. If you want to follow Max, he's at Max Naist. It's spelled N-I-J-S-T. That's maxnaist.com or on Facebook. You can also join his free Facebook group that he created, Fearless Happiness. And that's spelled happy, like H-A-P-P-Y, happiness. That's the Fearless Happiness Facebook group. You don't have to be an addict. You have to be in recovery. But if you are also, it's a great resource for a community and support. Also, make sure to check out his book, fearlesshappiness.com. Again, that's spelled with a Y, happiness.com. I'll put all this stuff in the blog post, so just make sure you check out danceoflife.com slash podcast. That's going to be the latest blog post for this. We'll, we'll link all this stuff in there where you can get the book, join the Facebook group, all that good stuff. Don't forget, I hope you enjoy this episode, guys, really, but don't forget our quote from the very beginning, way back when, Jesse Jackson, the only time you should ever be looking down on someone is when you're helping them up. You know, I think today we unpacked a lot in this interview, and a lot of it to me is central to our human experience of suffering. Emotions like shame, guilt, judging ourselves, being afraid, being anxious. These are common struggles that we all share. And when it comes to our, our own battles, we tend to be our harshest critics. So it's, remember, it's important to remember that we're all suffering inside. You know, whatever it happens to be, we're all dealing with our battles and we're all feeling lonely. We're all feeling lost at some point. So my motto 
from that quote and from today's episode, especially understanding the impact of addiction on all aspects of life is always try to add to someone's life. And if you can't add in the present moment, then at least don't do any harm or take away. So like, like Jesse Jackson said, the only time you should ever be looking down on someone is when you're helping them up. And that goes for yourself too. You know, I think one of the biggest things that we talked about with in Max's story was the shame and the guilt and, and looking down on yourself and judging yourself and then justifying a relapse. So if you resonate to this, there's help, there's support. If you know anybody in your life who can resonate with this, share it with them. You know, this could make a big difference in their life. I hope it does. Until then, tune in on Tuesday, guys. Thank you so much for listening, for being part of this adventure with me. And I hope to see you on Tuesday. We're going to do a little Tuesday transformation. Next Friday, we're going to jump into another episode on how to live your life with no regrets, kind of like related to this, a little bit of a springboard, but four keys to live a no regrets life. I'm going to share some insights with you on how to truly live a no regrets life, not a trendy no regrets life, but truly authentically to live a no regrets life. So until next time, remember guys, your life is a dance. So go out there and dance it well. episodes and weekly content, stay connected at danceoflife.com.